Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading for short and deep to his coy mistress by Andrew Marvel. This was first published posthumously in a book called Miscellaneous Poems uh, by, in 1681, edited by, I believe it was his sister, Mary. Um, I have heard of this poem a lot, and I recognize many of its lines from titles of uh, books and novels, and I'm sure it's referenced all over the place. This is perhaps one of the most quoted English poems, uh, or extracted English, English poems other than outside of Shakespeare. Uh, if, if you're going through a list, this might be the most extracted. I just recognize so many of the lines individually, and yet um, it, it is very unified in what it's doing as well. So it's not, it's not just a quote machine. It's a, <laughs> it's a, uh, a thing unto itself, and it's a pretty amazing thing as to what it's doing. Um, Wikipedia classifies it as a cavalier poem, um, and I guess they're saying Marvel was a cavalier poet. And I'm like, well, what, what is that? Um, but basically, it says, Cavalier poetry is different from traditional poetry because it, t- instead of tackling issues of religion, philosophy, and arts, Cavalier poetry aims to express the joy and simple gratification of celebratory things much livelier than traditional works and of their predecessors. Um, I would say that this is trying to get some gratification, but I'm not sure it... It results in that. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll see. Well, I, I, I think it's quite effective, so perhaps it did. <laughs> I think the uh, the most widely used critical term concerning this particular poem, which is a poem I love, um, is carpe diem. Mm. Seize the day. This is this is a poem in a long tradition that says. Seize the day, um, I think. And whether one wants to say, well, it's a cavalier treatment of it or not, all seize the day poetry is about taking advantage of what you can. Mm. I think um, we would all benefit from you narrating it to us. Would you care to do so? My pleasure. To his coy mistress. Had we but world enough and time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. Thou by the Indian Ganges side shouldst rubies find, and I by the tide of Humber would complain I would love you ten years before the flood. And you should, if you please, refuse till the conversion of the Jews. My vegetable love would grow vaster than empires and more slow. And a hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. Two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand for the rest. An age at least to every part, and the last age should show your heart. For, lady, you deserve this state, nor would I love at lower rate. 
But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity, and your quaint honor turned to dust and into ashes all my lust. The grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning glue, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may, and now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in his slow, chapped power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our son stand still, yet we will make him run. Um, I don't know. I don't know if this is an illusion. I doubt it's an illusion. But on this particular reading... Um, rolling our sweetness up into one ball. Um, that uh, that's. I'm the, gonna guess. Yeah, I know where you're going. Well, go for it. No, I'm not gonna preempt you. Go ahead. It's it's Plato. You got it. Okay. Yeah. Um. So I don't I don't know if he would. It's it, it's sort of changing the subject uh, is what he's doing, but he's using this as a metaphor, right? Um, a roll our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures through strife, through the iron gates of life. So this is like a, an assault right? on a on a on a fortress. <laughs> we're gonna destroy. We're gonna break out. <laughs> um, you know, I I think could I offer an alternative to that? Yeah, go for because it. Because I I I think this is in keeping with with the the tenor of the entire poem, which is one of devotion, love. And and high emotion and 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 he calls it lust, um, eagerness, eagerness. Um, in in Plato's notion, um, the soul is pure before birth, and it knows everything, or it knows lots and lots. But when we are born, when we descend from the superluminary lunary world to the sublunary world. Our souls go through a process that takes away from us so much so that in Plato's view, what an Aristotelian would call invention, that is, you come and you you make up something new, to a Platonist, what we get is an unforgetting, mm-hmm. anagnoresis is the Greek term. Mm-hmm. So when you go, ah, I, you know, this is it, oh, I suddenly realize it. What's happening is that the gnoresis, G-N-O-R, which is uh, cognate with our word knowledge and ignorance, right? Gnoresis is knowing, agnoresis is not knowing, and agnoresis is unnot knowing. Discovery is coming to understand what things were back when we were pure. Mm-hmm. Now, in Plato's allegory of, the, the, of love, as you know, that's what you're referring to, mm-hmm. um, primordially, 
humanity was a ball. Each person was a ball with four arms and four legs, and uh, and we could roll along really fast. And you know, and we were just the terrificest things in the universe. <laughs> and Zeus got jealous of us, and so he cut us in half. And so love, now that we have come down to the earth, is us seeking our other half, our complement. I would like to suggest to you that when it says in this poem, let us roll all our strength, all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life, they're going backwards. They're not projecting into life when they would forget things and be less complete. Life binds us all with iron gates. Mm-hmm. And he's suggesting if we could love, we could transcend this and go back. And hence the last couplet, we can't make our sun stand still. right? We can't actually get to a time that is a mythic time of permanence. But by golly, we can make him run as we can make the sun work the way we want it to work, which is to replicate that pure platonic ideal of love, Mm -hmm. which can only be reached by physical violence. (laughs) Yeah, um, what's funny is it's a very high-minded reading, and I I see it. But I also think that this is is a a ploy. (laughs) It's a guy who wants to have sex, and the lady's like, well, not yet. Yes, but not yet. (laughs) <laughs> so that's what the it, it, it's a it's a seduction poem. That's I think yes. what what people uh, take as the main thing out of it, and I absolutely agree. Um, one of the most um, can I? Uh, yep. I'd like to I'd like to to put some weight on your observation. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, "Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault, many as burial mm-hmm. vault shall be found my echoing song." shall sound my echoing song. Um, Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity. So try means to push against. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, um, So it's getting pretty physical here. And your quaint honor turned to durst. Interesting. Quaint is a word like coy, which Mm -hmm. is in the first line. Right? Oh, how cute. You know, you're just, oh, I'm... I'm protecting my honor. How quaint. But quaint is also slang for a woman's genitalia. Mm. So when he says worms, which are pretty clearly phallic symbols, even way before Freud, worms shall try thy long-preserved virginity and your quaint honor turn to durst, which is looks like it's a way of spelling dust, but it may be, yes, by golly, I dare do it. I durst. Um, I'm simply suggesting here those words absolutely reinforce your idea that this is seduction and it's not all high-minded oh no no question no question um but it, it, it at the same time as being um obviously highly literate <laughs> um he's he, he's he's actually doing something that's very this is why i think it's so so quoted is he's speaking to a real issue, <laughs> right? Uh, especially perhaps in a period where uh, birth control is uh, less reliable and societal uh, 
issues with regard to um, who's a slut and who isn't a slut are an issue. This is this is like it's speaking to the fact that we're mortals. Now there is a uh, it's right in the first line. A world enough in time. I believe I wanted to say that's a Star Trek episode with that title, but I think that's actually quoted by, I think it's, I think it's a, a quote somewhere in a Star Trek episode. Um, and it, it is about, this is a kind of about time travel, right? If we could, but live forever, we could do this, we could do that. I would spend, I mean, it's, it's a comedy too. I would spend a hundred years to praise your eyes, right? And uh, 200 on each breast, and at 30,000 for the rest. Well, obviously this is not available <laughs> to us. Um, and more importantly, her body, as his body, would not be um, beautiful and uh, ready and willing after so long a period of time. So he's saying, come on, let's go, let's get this on. Um, and that sort of extension into the future, projection into the future is why I think it's so rich. He is using these phrases, time's winged chariot, right? And uh, your marble vault. Well, that's projecting again into the future where you've got a a death. There's a novel by um, Peter S. Beagle, who he's famous for uh, a story called The Last Unicorn. Um, But the novel I'm thinking of is called um, A Fine and Private Place. That's a line right out of here. The grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do their embrace. Um, he is correct. Right? People don't uh, get out of their graves, and uh, even though they're lying beside each other in coffins, they don't have any time for love because they're dead. Um, that novel takes this idea of it being spiritually dead and, you know, living a, a ghostly existence, whether you're alive or not, and f- and finding love as a ghost, finding love in amidst the ghosts, and it's a very poignant and lovely piece. I think directly inspired by this idea. In fact, um, Edgar Allan Poe's *The Raven* bears a uh, a kind of longing sadness because of this. Right? That's that uh, all basically all of Poe's works uh, not all but a, a good chunk of his work is about uh dead women loved by men who are living this is a kind of a serious problem if you cannot love in life you're not going to love in death and so seek death is maybe the idea of the raven deep down underneath this is a powerful argument that he's making and what's so interesting is I think that this is what poetry is. I think this is our version of a bowerbird dance, you know? I think this is what humans do in poetry, is to show off the quality of their brain so that they can make suitable mates. And if you've read Shakespeare's uh, sonnets, uh, some of them seem to be addressed to men, some of them are addressed to women. I My thesis is that Shakespeare was writing these on commission and that he was trying to uh, help people get their sex on. And he was doing that for money. I think that it's amazing that that, that that happens. But if you think about 
uh, you know, sending mixtapes to your your sweetie, as people once did, and I'm sure are still doing, um, it's a kind of uh, proxy. It's kind of a proxy for um, the inability of oneself to write these poems. You pick someone else's poem, and you say, I picked this for you. It's like picking flowers, right? Oh, sure. So uh, oh. I think that this is a, uh, why this is such a famous and powerful poem is because the uh, the thesis of its magic is highly successful. I am finding myself persuaded by this dude. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he, he he writes a good poem. He does about it, I, and it's not just because the lines are quotable, and they are quotable because. Um, they, th- there is a way of the sound and sense going together that that uh, makes us recognize the fitness of all of this, the power, the the uh, the completion mm-hmm. of this. The the the, the couplets uh, work together in such a way that it just goes from proposing something and yes, it gets together. Proposing something and yes, it gets together. The rhyme after rhyme after rhyme makes you want to get together. Mm-hmm. I think. Below that, though, especially for an audience that comes from a culture that's steeped in kind of learning that is not universal now, but was, I think, um, in the late 17th century, uh, there are issues here having to do with the myth of human existence, not just Plato's myth, but Christian myth. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, very important. For two reasons. One, because having both sorts of myths here suggests that there is something about the myth, the notion of myth, that could transcend history. And this is uh, the argument that that Frank Kermode makes in The Sense of an Ending. Um, And I think he's right. There's something timeless about the, the world of myth as there is something timeless about Plato's superlunary world, as there is something timeless about heaven. And notice, uh, toward the beginning, um, I would love you ten years before the flood, Mm -hmm. and you should choose, if you please, refuse, till the conversion of the Jews. Now, the conversion of the Jews is what is necessary for the end of days. This is mm-hmm. in, in, in Revelations. And before the flood means that we are in the, the, the uh, antediluvian period. Now, mm-hmm. the very earliest time would be paradise. Mm-hmm. That, would, that wouldn't be before. Right, the flood comes after the fall. And the very latest time would be heaven. Right? That mm-hmm. comes after the conversion of the Jews. But if you move in just a little bit on either side... That's the time frame that the speaker is giving to the woman. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, if I could get there before the flood and you could wait till after the conversion of the Jews, in effect, we could be approaching each other through the time of myth, through the time when nothing changes. We could be approaching through our lovemaking the eternity of paradise and the eternity of heaven. We can subsume all of history here. And that, of course, is what really, this is Kermode's argument, this is what really good art does. It starts out in our time, but it becomes something that just is endless. 
That is, there's the beginning of the raven. But now that the raven exists, that poem, mm-hmm. it always exists. Exactly. It, like, like angels. So we can't really inhabit mythic time, but we can approach it. And the name for this that Kermode gives it is the Avum. So we have history, that's you know beginnings and ends to everything. Mythic time, which is timeless. And then we have the Avum, things that have beginnings but no ends. And that's what this guy is arguing, looking at that all kind at all kinds of myths. Indian, he's using Hindu myths as well, right? Looking at all of this, uh, looking at the Greek myths of the chariot of the sun going across the sky, um, looking at these myths, he's saying, "No, we can't do it. We can't do it." But my gosh, even though we cannot make our sun stand still. That would put us back at Genesis, you see. Mm-hmm. Um, we can make him run rather than him running us. We can make our time the time we want. And that last line, we will make him run, is so fierce that I think one can understand why uh, we view, he uses those amorous birds of prey rather than... Uh, lovebirds or doves or mm-hmm. what have you mm-hmm. it's a uh, it's fiercely intellectual and fiercely physical there's a poem we did uh, another poe poem um the sleeper by edgar Allan poe and just hearing you talk there I, I was reminded of a line um from it which is uh, an echo of this um this is from right near the end of the sleeper uh, some sepulchre remote alone against whose portal she hath thrown in childhood many an idle stone. Some vault from out whose sounding door she ne'er shall force an echo more. That is, right, That that's the, the line here. The, thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. What a good catch. I had not recognized that. Very good. Poe is Poe is extracting a kind of horror out of this hope that is this poem. This poem is suggesting all the wonderful things had we but world enough in time. And it's saying, but we have to take this we have to seize the day. Um I, I, and and it's I, I think it's got a sex joke. I mean, it it's got at least one sex joke. The one that strikes me is um, uh, my vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I understand what you're thinking of. But I, I I think that I, this I, metaphor is is beautiful, but I also think that it can be read juvenilely and. I think that this poem is rather juvenile as well as being very high-minded. It's high-minded in its illusions, but low-minded in its um, in its you, actions. <laughs> you, 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 you may well be right. You may well be right. I, I just just for those who are uh, afflicted with being English teachers, uh, the, the profession of, of the English pre- teacher, um, I will point out that the word vegetable in the late late 17th century is as opposed to animal. 
Mm-hmm. And, and what it means is, um, I, and I double-checked this in the OED, Oxford English Dictionary, vegetable is capable of growth, but incapable of feeling. Mm-hmm. As opposed to animal, which can both grow and feel. Um, I don't know for sure what you were thinking of, Jesse, <laughs> but in my experience, if growth means no feeling, it's not as sexy as I'd like it to be. <laughs> um, Time's winged chariot afflicts us all. Uh, in this very effective and powerful and short poem, it is um, incredible to see the riches that it 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 it's beauty, right? Yes. Uh, uh, can you read it one more time, just so we hear it one more time? I will, but I want to point to just one word, that mm-hmm. analysis that we've been pursuing here between uh, things that actually happen and things that are ideal and sort of don't happen. Notice the line, deserts of vast eternity. Mm-hmm. This eternity has neither beginning nor end, and he's opposing that to the world in which we can actually get together with rough strife. Had we but world enough and time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. Thou by the Indian Ganges side should sift shouldst rubies find, and I by the tide of Humber would complain. I would love you ten years before the flood, and you should, if you please, refuse till the conversion of the Jews." My vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow. And hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. Two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest. An age at least to every part. And the last age should show your heart. For, lady, you deserve this state, nor would I love at lower rate. But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near, and yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity, and your quaint honor turn to dust, and into ashes all my lust, the graves of fine and private place, but none, I think, do their embrace. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning glue, and while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may, and now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour then languish in his slow chap power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our son stand still, yet we will make him run. Beautiful. Given that... We can pick out lines here, like rough strife, a fine and private place, world enough and time, time's winged chariot, vast eternity. Vaster than empires. 
Faster Than Empires and More Slow is a story by uh, Ursula Le Guin, mm-hmm. among other things. Right? Um, given that individual phrases here themselves are the, the inspiration and summation of whole other works, this is an absolute demonstration that there is always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.